It's an incredible song to sing just after looking at the first couple of chapters of Genesis when we think about God's intention being that he would dwell with his people and then he will come in person as Jesus to Israel and, of course, create his people in the church. It's like a summary almost of what Jesus brings for us. We're going to look a lot at in this, this chapter of Scripture at Jesus being with us, but we're mostly going to focus on Jesus being with God in the beginning, which is a significant mystery as we ponder the, the expanse of God, the inability to compare him to anything or anyone, in that he is three in one. So I need prayer because this word is beyond me. It's beyond all of us. We need the Holy Spirit to come and give us insight into the scriptures that are a spiritual word from God. And without the Holy Spirit, we will not understand or comprehend them. So let me read the passage so it's in our mind. We're in John 1, not 1 John, John 1, 1 to 13. Uh, We're going to focus on 1 to 5 and 9 to 13, but I'll read it as one chunk as it is written. And then we'll pray for God's help in understanding. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but the light, but he but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, if there is a word to tremble at, it is the words we have just read. These are a profound mystery. Words that that are beyond us, that are divine, that give us insight into the spiritual world, who you are and what you did and how you dwelt before The world was made. It gives us insight into how you created the world, you, Jesus, and the Spirit, all one but distinct 
in person. What a mystery. What a mystery you are, Lord, and it is a good thing that you are a mystery for you, Lord, a God. Holy, holy, holy is how you are described. Beyond anything in all of creation, you cannot be compared to the angels for you are far above the angels. You cannot be compared to man for you, Lord, are far above man. Lord, we cannot compare you to the sun or the moon or the stars or anything else in all creation. For you, Lord, formed them, fashioned them, and by your word created them out of nothing, and you alone are eternal. Lord, I tremble at your word, and I pray my brothers and sisters before me, those who call on your name would tremble at your word as well, that we would be humbled And we would respond in humility like children who surrender before their father. That our life would be marked with repentance and grace. Lord, I pray that your spirit will be given to us in a fullness today. That we may be stirred deeply in our soul to understand more of your magnificence, more of your beauty, more of your excellence. That coming into Christmas, Lord, our hearts would be rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing because of who you are and because of who you've claimed us to be, your children. We pray this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. We have been in the book of Genesis. That is the first book of the Bible. We have been looking at the first two chapters. Chapter one being the creation of the universe, the cosmos, all things visible and invisible. This summary statement in Genesis 1.1 is, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That is all things, seen and unseen. God created them. In chapter 2, we looked at the creation of God's dwelling place, his first temple, so to speak, in Eden, the garden, in which he would dwell with man and he would walk among man and they would extend the boundaries of Eden to the rest of the world. It almost seems strange to jump out of Genesis at the end of chapter 2 and then move on to John 1. But if we remember our overview about eight weeks ago, we spoke about this offspring. The Genesis is about an offspring, a waiting, a expectation of this offspring who will conquer, who will be a wounded victor, who will stamp on Satan's head. Genesis 3.15 tells us that Eve will have a son or an heir, an offspring, who will stamp on Satan's head and have ultimate victory. And all the way throughout Genesis, we see these turning points as we say, as it swaps the storyline from one person to the next. And every time, it's almost like a pause of anticipation, a waiting to see, is this the offspring? Is Noah the offspring? Is Abraham the offspring? Isaac, Jacob, 
Moses, as we keep going throughout the Old Testament, David and the kings that follow, the prophets, are these the offspring? And we wait with anticipation, we wait with expectancy. Is he going to be it who will conquer Satan, who will free us from our bondage to sin and deliver us from death that consumes all of mankind? And although these men foreshadow Christ, they are all unworthy. Abraham points to Christ. Isaac, of course, points to Christ in the offering up of his own flesh, of course, not willingly like Christ. David in his kingship reflects Christ. The prophets in the words they speak reflect Christ, but they are not Christ. There's a great phrase in John that really summarizes this for us. And it, and it says, John says it twice. It says in verse 15 of John 1, John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. This is a great summary of what John the Baptist believes about Jesus. He who comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. So Abraham is the same. Or... Isaac or Jacob or Moses or David, Jesus who comes after them ranks before them because he was before them. He dwelt in the presence of God. And as we unpack this passage, we find a great weight on who Christ was before he was the infant in the manger. And as we read the Old Testament, Would we read it with the weight of longing for this offspring and with our eyes open, read the passages that point to Christ? And let me just give you a few, just four. Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. That's Israel, the nation. A scepter shall raise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. And break all the sons of Sheth. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord himself will send you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel. Isaiah 9.6-7 Or just 6. We could read 7, but we won't. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, The government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Hundreds of years before Jesus, these are the words that come to us with an expectation, a longing. When will he come? Deliver us from our bondage to sin. Deliver us from our bondage to death. And Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem, who are you, little to be among the clans of Judah, Judah? From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from the ancient days. Micah says, from the ancient days, from the very beginning, we've been waiting for this ruler who will come forth into the nation of Israel and will rule. And he'll come from a little town called Bethlehem. 
And of course, we land on an ordinary night, and you can read it in Luke or Matthew. An ordinary night in a busy town because of the census being called of Bethlehem, and a child is born in a barn, in the humility of a stable, to a virgin. Yet shepherds come to worship him. Angels herald his birth. People who have waited for long, uh, for many generations, Simeon and Anna, when they enter into the temple with a infant, with a one or two-year-old, start to sing praise to God that he is here. That the Messiah, the Savior is here. We think Abraham was righteous according to his faith. David was a man after God's own heart, wasn't he? Yet he who ranks, he who comes after him ranks before him because he was before him. This infant in a manger to a virgin is worshipped by shepherds and priests and angels and declared to be God Almighty, which we see so clearly in John 1. John 1 is my favourite Christmas story because it tells us who Jesus was before he became a child in human flesh. It's my favourite story, Christmas story because it, it's simple in that it says, and God became, or the Word became flesh, which we'll look at next week. But let's unpack this as we do, verse by verse, and try and grasp the weightiness of Jesus in human flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John opens his gospel account like none other. The other three gospels, they're grand and they have an incredible way of writing, but John has this particular style of writing that many philosophers, non-Christian philosophers, has said it's worthy of being written in gold. As they read this prelude to the gospel of John, verses 1 to 18, Many non-believers have said this is worthy of being written in gold. One in particular, a guy named Francis, by the grace of God, was accidentally reading John 1. And he says that he saw such a great divinity, that's God-like or power from above, spiritual power, in the argument, such an authority and majesty in the style that his flesh trembled and was struck with such amazement that for the whole day, he could scarcely think or know where he was. And he says, on that day, I became a follower of Jesus. I would suggest, if you don't have a favorite, favorite Bible passage, choose John 1. It's an incredible, incredible passage that I think highlights, maybe more than many, the inspiration of God's word upon man. That although John wrote it, it is very much written by the Holy Spirit. It's very clear to be written by the Holy Spirit, maybe is a better way of phrasing it. So John, through the Spirit, 
as Moses was inspired by the Spirit to write Genesis 1.1, John, through the Spirit, writes Gen- John 1.1. 1, 1. And it's deliberate and it's weighty and we should feel the weight of the phrase in the beginning. Genesis 1.1 starts with in the beginning. John 1.1 starts with in the beginning and it is deliberate and weighty. In Genesis 1, 1, we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the total sum of all creation. Nothing was created without God. In John 1, 1, it says that in the beginning, the word, oh, sorry, in the beginning was the word. So that phrasing at the start of Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God, it's an ultimate statement to say in the beginning, there was only God. But John 1.1 1, 1 is saying, but in the beginning was the Word. Are they contradicting one another? Absolutely not. Because what do we see happen very quickly in Genesis 1 is that God says, God spoke. And in him speaking, his Word went forth. And John 1.1 1, 1 tells us his Word is more than just words, but a person, an active person. This is an incredible mystery because our words are not people. Our words are not separate from us in any such way. But 10 times in Genesis 1, we see God said, and then the action happens. Something was created, and then he said it was very good. And in speaking, Jesus is working. The word here in the Greek is logos, and it is a weightier word than what we have. It's word in action. So it's not just our physical words that come out of our mouth, but it's a word in action. It gives actual weight to the fact that Jesus, this word that God spoke, is a person. Not just a thing, not just a voice, but rather a person, a distinct member of God. Because what follows from here is the Word was with God. The weight of the Word was with God is a representation of being face-to-face with someone. The Word and God the Father were face-to-face in eternity past. Before anything else was created, in the beginning, before all things came into existence, the Word being Jesus and God the Father, were face-to-face in community. They knew each other personally. We know that feeling of talking to someone and they're really close and you, like, feel a bit awkward. Well, they were, with absolute purity, the closest a relationship could ever be with no awkwardness. They were face-to-face. And notice that... The Word was with God, and the Word is going to be with us. Jesus is going to be with us. Emmanuel is with us. But in the beginning, the Word was with God. And then one of the most direct and clearest statements we have in all of Scripture about who Jesus is, the Word was God. We can't get any clearer. And John goes on to pretty much explain John 1.1 throughout the rest of the gospel in different ways of phrasing it by saying Jesus and God are one. 
They are distinct from one another. Father and son are distinct from one another in person, but they are one in the Godhead. And throughout the rest of the book of John, we see Jesus, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. A great statement that God uses in Exodus when speaking to Moses. These phrases that God the Father used in the Old Testament, so Jesus now uses in John's letter. And the weight of what the apostle wants to get across is you may not understand it, you may not comprehend it, but Jesus and the Father may be distinct in person, but they are one in nature and being. They are one God. And it is a good thing that we don't understand it. Because a God we comprehend is a not, not a very big God. A God that a human can fashion with their own mind and design with their own intellect is not, a, not, an, not an incredibly big God and not a holy God. Because holy means to be unique. Holy means to be cut off, separated. So a holy God is a God who has mystery behind him. But in John's wisdom, or Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom, he makes a mystery as clear as he possibly can by stating in the beginning was the Word, Jesus. The Word was with God. They were face-to-face. They're distinct persons. They had an intimate relationship like nothing anyone has ever had. So intimate that Jesus was God. So intimate that they are one and the same. So what we have is just as God, when we looked at Genesis 1-1, is eternal, self-sufficient, self-existent, so is the word, Jesus, is co-eternal, self-sufficient, self-existent. The word is with God, yet distinct from God in person, And the mystery is something we wait to be revealed in the new heavens and the new earth. But it's this profound person, the Word, who we're going to see more of his attributes become human flesh, which is a weighty, weighty picture and action from a God who is far, far above our creation. Verse 2 says, He was in the beginning with God. All, and verse 3, All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. John's heavenly inspired writing continues to explain the mystery by stating in repetition, which is a common Uh, way of writing, a common way of accentuating, putting an exclamation mark on his statements, and he's attributing characteristics that are of God to the Word. This is really important. This is how we understand both Jesus being God and the Father being God and the Spirit being God throughout the Scriptures, is that throughout the Scriptures, they They refer to the Godhead separately doing the same tasks. They refer to the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, separately doing the same tasks. Here, we see that the Word 
was there in the beginning. We've, we've already heard him say that. He's repeating it. He's emphasizing it. He's saying Jesus was there in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What John is doing is attributing the creation of the world now to Jesus, the word. They are both faithful. The father spoke, the word actively went out and created out of nothing. Christ made all things, the heavens and the earth. The father made all things, the heavens and the earth. John affirms it in two different ways. First, the positive, all things were made through him. That's the positive statement. Everything was made through him, through Jesus. Without him, without him was not anything made that was made. He then states it in the negative. Without Jesus, you don't exist. Without Jesus, this world doesn't exist. Without Jesus, the sun, the moon, and the stars don't exist. Of course, we see this affirmed later in Colossians, Colossians 1.16, for by him, Jesus, all things were created, and that phrase from Genesis, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominion or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. We can see this like, this power of the Holy Spirit working through mortal men trying to articulate something that is of great worth and value that is outside of our understanding. How does the finite understand the infinite? How does the unholy understand the holy? And the way we see it in Scripture is by repetition and by stating these same spiritual truths until we grasp it and have content in believing it, knowing that we're not going to grasp it to its fullness. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Is a statement to say Jesus and God are one. But we go on about this word in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is life. He gets a lot of names in this chapter. And Jesus also, just some trivia, in Revelation has a name that no one knows. It's an incredible picture to think of. Jesus is life. By him, the word came, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything was formed. Without him, nothing. We're seeing another emphasis on the fact that Jesus is the beginning of all things. Once again, John, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is now rephrasing what he's just said before. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made by saying in a simpler way, Jesus is life. Jesus alone is life. Without him, there is no natural life. But if we add in the next phrase, and the life was the light of men, there is no spiritual life. If you hear someone say they are a spiritual person and they don't know Jesus, 
then they are not spiritual people at all. Jesus is both the natural life, the physical life of our flesh. He gives life through his word. We see that in Genesis 1, that we were formed from the dust, that we were breathed life into through the spirit. We see it in Colossians where it says that by him all things are held together. Jesus is the natural life, but he is also the spiritual life. In him, he is the only way we can be connected to the spiritual world. The only way we can have access to the Father. He is life and the light of man. John 10, 10, as I said, these, these themes that are introduced in Genesis 1 are themes that run throughout the whole of John. Jesus being the word is confirmed. Jesus being the life is, the, is confirmed. Jesus, Jesus being the light is confirmed and expanded upon. And if we were to do a series in John's gospel, we would see the patterns raise and come, come out. In, in John 10.10, 10, we have a very misunderstood phrase that says, Jesus came to bring life and life to the full, or maybe your translation says life and life abundantly. And this has become a phrase where people have slogans of their church, your best life now, or for their next church camp or youth camp, they say, come and live life to the full. This is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is speaking that fullness of life is both the physical and the spiritual. Living a fullness of life is living in the knowledge of who we are in God, living in the understanding that we were formed and fashioned by God as image bearers of God and therefore are to glorify God with our lives. That is what it means to live life to the full. Yet, of course, Genesis 3 takes place and we are in spiritual darkness. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We live in a world where Jesus brought, where Jesus is both natural, physical, and spiritual. And we live in a world today where there are glimpses of the spiritual through Jesus and Jesus alone, not through other means. But we live in a physical world of darkness. So when we read verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. We're not in hell yet. We're not in hell yet. We're not separated from Christ completely forever in this world. The darkness has not completely destroyed any hope of salvation. The darkness being and meaning spiritual depravity, an inability to do anything good for the right reasons. The right reasons being to glorify God and give God absolute honor and to be obedient to him and to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is what it means to be in the light but yet this world is in spiritual darkness and unable to do any of that, yet we must remember that the darkness has not overcome the light. The light being 
Jesus is greater than the darkness. The light being Jesus is that he will come into the world as we'll see in this passage. He will come into the world and make way for people to come from dark darkness to light. Ephesians 2 puts it a different way when it says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are dead. Now, of course, Paul is not lying here. He doesn't actually think everyone is physically dead. He is saying you are spiritually dead, unable to live good and right up to God's standard. You are spiritually unable to honor God as God. When we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we can't do that. We can't honor God as God. We can't love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So although the world is full of darkness, although the world is full of this falsehood and evil, the light still shines and there is still hope. And Christ still stands calling people to himself. Isaiah 42 says, he will be a light for the nations. Jesus will be the light for the nations. He will stand there calling people out of darkness. And we know that those who have believed in him have been taken from the kingdom of darkness into the light of his son, Jesus. I love J.C. Riles. It's, it's a decently long quote, but I think it's worth while reading. J.C. Riles puts it this way about the light. Christ is to the souls of men what the sun is to the world. He is the center and the source of all spiritual light, warmth, life, health, growth, beauty, and fertility. Like the sun, he shines for the common benefit of all mankind, for high and for low, for rich and for poor, for Jew and for Greek. Like the sun, he is free to all. All may look at him and drink health out of his light. If millions of mankind were mad enough to dwell in caves underground or to bandage their eyes, their darkness would be their own fault and not the fault of the sun. So likewise, if millions of men and women love spiritual darkness rather than light, the blame must be laid on their blind hearts and not on Christ. Later in John, it says, men love darkness because their deeds are concealed. And John 3, 19 says, the foolish hearts are darkened in their understanding. Whether men see it or not, Christ is the true sun, the true light of this world, the true spiritual sun of this world. That's S-U-N, spiritual sun, the, the light that exposes the dark sin. There is no light for sinners except the Lord Jesus Christ. No light other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now at verse 5 or verse 6, it goes in to tell us about John the Baptist. We're going to jump over that and go straight to verse 9. John the Baptist came to witness about the light. He was not the light. That's what it is saying. It's a teaching to say, don't follow John Follow the one he is sending you to, the one who ranks before him because he was before him. So verse 9 continues with this theme of light. The true light, 
which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. I am amazed at what stops me in my tracks. I'm amazed that at times foolish, petty things cause me to stop and ponder. And I'm amazed that lofty, weighty, majestic phrases like this doesn't cause me to pause and deeply ponder my existence. Because there is a phrase here in these verses that should cause all mankind, and I can understand our philosopher from the start, uh, feeling the weight of trembling as he reads these words and is struck to the heart. Because it says here that the true light was coming into the world. So all that we have heard, the word who is with God, who is eternal and self-sufficient, the one who created all, created all things, who holds all things together, the one who has absolute purity in him, complete righteousness, holy, set apart, high above anything else in all of creation, for he is not created. The one who is light and life, this one is coming into the world, but the world does not know him. Doesn't that cause us to tremble? The one who created, sustained, fashioned you, the one who governs the stars, holds the sun, could tell the oceans to stop. If we think about those questions that God has asked Job in Job 38 to 40. Where were you, O man, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I stretched a measuring line across it? Jesus says I was there. He, the one who was there, the one who knows all things, understands all things, lives eternally, has no beginning nor end. He is coming into the world, the world he fashioned and created, and the world doesn't know him. That is the greatest evil that ever has existed and ever will exist. That the world does not know Jesus, their creator, their sustainer, the one who knitted you together in your mother's womb. The world does not know him. That is the weight of human depravity. Human depravity is that God, their creator and sustainer, the father of all life, can come into the world and not know and not be known by their creation. That reveals the darkness of man's heart. It reveals the darkness of man's heart and it reminds us very clearly of Romans 1.21 which says that because of creation, the attributes of God are clearly seen and man are without excuse. Because if we read verse 10 very carefully, it says, was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus has always been here. He was invisible in his nature, but he was seen through his creation. Jesus has always been here, yet he comes in physical flesh, and the world will reject him in a 
aggressive way to the point of crucifixion. Not only that, in verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The weight is that even with all the spectacular, spectacular signs of the Old Testament for the Israelites, they still don't know him. So you've got the Greeks over one side who have all of creation and they're saying, we don't know him. We don't want anything to do with him. We've got the religious over the other side, the Jews who have a history of miraculous works of God's right hand delivering them out of Egypt, God's right hand delivering out of their enemy, God's right hand prospering them, and they don't know him. So it doesn't matter if you've seen mighty works of God. It doesn't matter if you have uh, seen his creation. Even with all that goes on in your life, you will not know him or see him. So Jesus stands before man and in their pride and self-obsession will not see him as he is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The darkness of a man's soul is darker than we ever give it credit for. God, have mercy on this world, which he does. Because in verse 12, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The greatest evil needs the greatest saviour of all. And the greatest saviour could not be one who is created, but one who has eternally existed forever and ever. And his name is Jesus. And he comes to his own and he gives them the right to become children of God for those who believe. But it's important we understand belief. Because we live in a day where anyone who acknowledges that they're a Christian, we go, oh, they're a Christian, let's accept them into the church. But the church in Scripture is very clear that in the church there are those who believe through their own righteousness, their own good works, their own knowledge, their own ability, and there's those who believe through new birth and spiritual awakening through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a very clear difference in the Scripture Scriptures. We see in Matthew 4, Matthew 24, Matthew 24, 25, we see the 10 virgins. They both believe in God, believe in Jesus. They're both waiting for the bridegroom to come. Five of them, five of them believe Jesus through the new birth that the Spirit brings. The other five believe Jesus through their own intellect and own knowledge. Only five of them enter into the kingdom of God. We see the sheep and the goats who are together and Jesus separates at the end of the time. We have those who believe through new birth, through supernatural eyes being awakened, through a humility of repentance. And we have those who believe through their own knowledge and self-awareness. They are the goats who are separated off and do not enter into the kingdom of God. Of course, we've got one of the scariest passages in Scripture in Matthew 24 which says, on that day, many will come to me, many will come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not 
drive out demons in your name? Did I not perform many miracles in your name? And he will say to them, I never knew you. That is a weighty, scary passage for the Western church today. In that there are many people who call upon the name of Jesus in their own strength and are still dependent upon their own good deeds. And they're going to come to Jesus on that day and they're going to say, Jesus, I did all these good things and I did them for you. I went to church. I gave to the church. I even did some evangelism. I served on the morning tea roster and served in worship. Maybe I was even a pastor. And Jesus is going to turn to them and say, I never knew you. So what's the difference? And how can we know? In verse 13, it tells us who the children of God are who were born, who were born. So those who believe in his name, he gave the right to be children of God who were born, not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What does, God, what does Jesus take away here? Our works, our abilities, our way of coming to him. He says not by blood. It's not through our sacrifice through his sacrifice, not by the will of the flesh, not by our works of good deeds, not by attending church or taking communion or doing good deeds, not by our will, but of God. It's supernatural. It's spiritual. John 3 goes on to expand this as the religious leader comes to Jesus by night in secret and says, how do we enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be born again. Again, so what's the difference between those who believe through their own might and own knowledge, those who Jesus does not know, and, between, and, and, and those who are born of God? The difference, and I take this from the seven churches in Revelation. If you don't know them, they're letters to seven churches. Six times. He calls these churches to be humble and repent and endure patiently. To be humble and repent and endure patiently. Those who are born again, those who continue in the faith, those who have belief in Christ through the supernatural new birth where their eyes have been awakened to the weightiness of the start of John 1, they realize the weight of who God is they realize the weight of their own darkness and depravity, come to God in daily humility and repentance until they take their last breath. How do we know if someone's a Christian? How do we know if they're a sheep and not a goat, to use Jesus' metaphor? That they have humble repentance, humble daily repentance to the day that they die, to the day that they take their last breath. There'll be wanderings, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We will wander, but at the word of rebuke and correction by a loving brother or sister, as they present the word of God to us, as they hold up the holiness of Christ and what he has claimed for us, we'll be corrected, we'll be brought back, we'll be drawn to the fold of God. There are a great many churches that minister to the goats because the goats have the loudest voice. 
They're the, compla- they're the complainers, the slanderers, the gossips, the ones who push against correction, don't want to be nurtured, don't want to grow. We need to direct our attention to the sheep, the real fold of God, the ones who want to grow, the ones who come in humility, the ones who can accept correction, the ones who endure and endure to the end. I pray that this Christmas will be a time where we feel the weightiness of God becoming flesh. And as we look at ourselves in light of Christ, we'll see first our depravity and second his grace and we'll be lifted up in worship of him and dependence upon him. Let me pray for us. dwell on these things forever Lord we can meditate on you forever we can ponder your grace forever and Lord we will in glory when we see you face to face we will ponder you forever we'll worship you forever we'll be sinless We won't end. But Lord, now as we dwell in this place of darkness, remind us that the light has not been overcome, that the light is overcoming the darkness, that the light will conquer the darkness once and for all and death will be put under your feet. Father, in your grace, in your grace, Lord, I pray that we will be humbled with great humility in our daily daily repentance and dependent upon you. Lord, grow your church. Grow the mighty, mighty in grace, mighty in dependence. Let us boast in our weaknesses and love your strength. And Lord, I pray that with all our might, with all your might, should I say, that we will endure in humility and repentance until the day we breathe our last for your glory and your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.